thanks so much for sticking around. We got awesome stuff to come up in part B. Phil talks about the start of his European career, uh, winning a stage of Tour de France and the white jacket for Young Rider, as well as racing with Lance Armstrong, among many other amazing stories. So obviously, so you've joined the Peugeot team, I hope that's how you pronounce it, um, and in 81 you compete in your first Tour de France. Now you know what it is at that point, obviously not knowing when you started racing as we touched on earlier. Um, how did you go in your first Tour and in particular, um, was it the Stage 5 or Stage 6 that you had particular success in? Um, yeah, look, I didn't really know that much about the Tour. Like obviously it's it's the um, you know it's, it's the pinnacle event of the year. Um, my first year on the tour, I uh, sorry on uh, as a pro on the Peugeot, Peugeot team. I knew when I signed that I wasn't wasn't going to be doing the tour. You know, I was a young kid, I was like twenty one, and um, you know it wasn't on my program. And they told me that up front. You know, but I knew the riders on the team. They all made a big fuss about it. So I knew that you know this was a big event. Uh, you know, it's a bit like, I don't know, uh, uh, you know, being a, a jockey and wanting to do the Melbourne Cup in Australia or, in, in, yeah, in the sport or, you know, um, and being told, you know, being part of a, a big stable or a big um, big team of jockeys that uh, you're not going to do it, you know. If you know it up front, you're fine with it. Otherwise, I mean... You know, you'd sign with another team if that's what you want. Or, but uh, you know, I'll follow up front. You know, I'm not expected to do it. Uh, come the year, it's kind of my second year. Um, you know, I was, you know, I first year I, I won a couple of small events, and uh, you know, but by the second year I I uh, got some good results coming into the Tour de France. And the teams, you know, all these teams that are in the tours, in the in the big tours. Um, they all have well now they have 30 riders or 28 riders uh, you know back then the teams were a bit small so they had about 18, 20 riders and so for the Tour de France they only put nine riders eight or nine riders in, in the uh, in the Tour so there's kind of a selection process within the team so um, uh, you know I was going well leading into the Tour so you know there's a good chance I was going to be on the team you know won some Tours coming, coming in and possibly one of the Better riders in the in the in the in the team, so they put me in the team, and you know, there's always like you know some of the older, you know, I was like the only, uh, uh, yeah, I was like the only non-Frenchman on the team, you know, so they're all grumbling, you know, that they should be picked before me or whatever. But anyway, I was just, I was just um, didn't care, you know. It's like to be on the team. It was great. My, I was on the team as a, even though I was winning races, you know, my job there was to help some of the um, more senior riders, better riders on the team and, uh, you know, carrying water bottles and, uh, you know, just doing, they call them domestics, <laughs> demeaning kind of name, but, you know, the position, you, have, you know, you have your team leaders, you have your captain on the team, then you have your, your domestics and, um, and then you have your managers and that who are in the car, your mechanics and so on, you know, the masseurs and all that sort of stuff. Um, but my job was a domestic. So my job was just, uh, you know, going back, back, getting water bottles when it's really hot. You know, you have to drop back to the car, uh, you know, when you've got a bunch of riders and uh, it's a really hot day. 
you might go through half a dozen bottles. So when the team leader or, you know, one of the key players uh, wants a drink, he'll snap his fingers and Anderson's to go back <laughs> to car number 23 normally, <laughs> the last car, and uh, come back with a bunch of bottles. So you put them in your pockets and down your shirt, you might carry nine bottles. That's nine litres, or not nine litres, no, it's possibly like five litres, but, yeah, you take up like eight or nine bottles, you know, those big sort of water bottles. I don't know here, but... Um, you know, another job as a domestic is um, pushing them while they're taking a piss. <laughs> that's real. That's, uh, that wasn't in the job description. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, a bloke having a slash, uh, of, you know, while you're moving along, uh, you, you can lose momentum, um, you know, if there's much of a breeze <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you're not going downhill. So I think they 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 called me to uh, push them when they're having a piss, especially when they're going uphill, I think, in a crosswind. <laughs> so you get bloody covered with piss. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> I think it's very few sports where, uh, you know, that's part of it. Yeah, it's not, it's not something you hear about too much as a, uh, as a bit of an outsider to the sport. Uh, the... Well, what do you call it? The domestic uh, pushing the person taking a piss. It's a bit of a uh, an oddity in terms of cycling. But uh, a question I've got. You mentioned it before. Uh, obviously, you think of cycling in that era. You're like the Aussie guy. Like you're the Australian cyclist, and with a bunch of Europeans just in the rest of the tour. What's it like being that only Aussie guy in people who don't necessarily? Uh, speak English as a first language and uh, there uh, might be a bit, oh, who's this little prick coming from Australia trying to take our spots? Is there much kind of uh, nervousness, anxiousness uh, in regards to that? Yeah, I think I was a bit of oblivious to it. Um, you know, we had a number of other riders on the team who weren't, um, who weren't French they weren't on the tour team, but we had Dutch riders and we had, um, we had that Scottish rider again, Robert Miller. We had an English rider, Graham Jones, um, you know, and and they were maybe more observant than me, you know, but I made it on the team and, and, um, and they didn't, but, you know, they sort of uh, hear what's going on and they spoke better French than I as well because at the dinner table it was all French spoken, so I spoke a little bit of French. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah. Like I didn't, I didn't really feel it. Um, you know, there, there were, you know, as my career progressed and I became a, a team leader, then uh, uh, you know, there's people saying that I should have had more support from my uh, teammates, and if I was French, I would have had better support. But uh, but anyway, going back to your um, question earlier about. Um, day five or day six or whatever. So it's my first tour of France. You rock up on the start line. I didn't know what to expect. I mean, everybody in the in the team was always banging on about tour de France is this. And, oh, you know, like only, you know, 60% or 50% of the riders make it to Paris, you know, three weeks sort of obviously around the country. And, you know, you got all these mountain ranges and, you know, crashes and everything else, you know. I didn't know what to bloody expect. Did you have much experience um, on mountain ranges? You know, coming from Australia, we're, we're not the most mountainous country. No, not really. No, I'd, uh, the dandy noms. <laughs> you know, for me, uh, Glenfrey Row is a bloody epic. <laughs> I mean, I've ridden the 
dandenongs and, and um, but it never done it, you know, I'd never seen snow or anything like that. <laughs> I've never really been in the big, in the big mountains. So, um, yeah, so day five, day five, no, day, yeah, day four we had a team time trial. So it was an event where it's, it's different than just an A, a to B um, stage. So, that you know, the Tour de France goes for three weeks and it's mostly just, you know, stages which go from town to town. So um, this particular day, uh, day four, was a team time trial. So that's where the Peugeot team, uh, you know, the eight of us, head off together uh, separately and all the other teams are, are, are riding in their teams and we all go off in our teams maybe five minutes apart or something like that. Uh, this particular stage four, I think it was like um, 50 kilometres, and, um, you know, and, and you just rotate. You're basically just trying to get to the finish as a group as fast as possible. So, and they still have those stages now in the tour. They didn't have one this year in 2020, but, um, you know, there's always quite a bit of focus on that. So, anyway, uh, had I done one before? I might have done one when I was a kid back here. Done a, you know, like they might have had the Victorian Championship team time trial or something like that where you ride, you know, the Hawthorne Club. But anyway, um, you know, we just take off hell for leather and it was down the south, down at a place called Carcassonne, so sort of start and finish there and we went out and did a, a 50K loop. Anyway, our team, the Peugeot team, did very well. We got second. So I think it was like the Dutch uh, TI rally team came first. We came second. I don't know who, who else. So, so uh, and you get the time that you ride. So if you do... Um, you know, if you do, if it takes you an hour, that's the time that you get on your um, on your results. So, uh, and that's how the Tour de France works. You know, uh, it's basically just your aggregated your total time that you've taken to do the entire lap of France. So uh, you start together every day, and then sometimes you finish it together every day. But it's, it's usually the mountains and things like these time trials that, um, you know, split everybody up. So our team did very well. So uh, being early on in the race, day four, it's all kind of stacked, you know. So when you look at the results after four days because of the team time trial, it's like the rally, the Dutch team, they, they took the first uh, eight places and then after that was the Peugeot riders and then after that was maybe the team that got third in the, uh, time, in the, um, in the team time trial. So, so that was great. I'd moved from the back page up to the front page of the results. <laughs> and then, uh, so the very next day, we're heading into the Pyrenees. You know, I'd heard of the Pyrenees and the guys on the team were all very nervous about these mountains. And, um, you know, we had a, we had a good uh, climber on the team, Jean René. He was our team leader. And, um, you know... Good French people. name, that. <laughs> yeah, very, very uh, French name, Jean René Bernardo. And uh, he was... He was our humble leader, so, you know, I was preparing to be pissed on by my <laughs> in the mountains. So, uh, but I remember, like, uh, you know, it was like a 200-kilometre stage um, finishing at a ski resort in the mountains, you know, um, at this place called Plantatage. And we had, like, I don't know, four mountain passes or three mountain passes plus this finish up this bloody ski resort. So... I remember the first first part of the stage was flat, and I just remember thundering along the road, you know, with 200 riders, and they're going hell for leather. You know, they're going like 60 k's an hour. It's almost like it's a, like you think 
somebody's holding the finish <laughs> the finishing flag, uh, you know, 50 k's in, because they're going like hell for leather. And I'm trying to find a teammate saying, what the fuck's going on? Is a 200 k's, maybe 150 k's to go. Where are these bloody mountains? <laughs> and I'm looking up the road, you know, and you're looking over, sort of sitting up, and you, you know, everybody's hunched down. You sort of stand up, sit up straight on the bike, and look over, over, the, I can see the bloody mountains. And my teammate, you know, I'm trying to speak French, and he says, no, 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 and I can see, like, above the clouds, I can see the top of these mountains. <laughs> they're all bloody, they're, right, they're spreading because, you know, they know there's a corner coming up. And uh, sure enough, um, you know, after about a kilometre, we turn, you know, between two houses down this narrow bloody goat path, which started climbing. And, you know, I, I didn't know, you know, now everybody has GPS minutes and bloody radios and they know what's going on. For, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> You know, it wasn't like there was a sign saying uh, one tough climb coming up. Um, so anyway, you know, I buried my head and body, put my head down and chased, but, you know, I might have moved up one place. But anyway, we got to that bottom corner and, and sure enough, as soon as we got to the, that uh, bottom corner of the first mount, you know, everybody just strung out and people leaving gaps and, oh, you know, like a, you'd sort of move out and move around somebody and then somebody... You know, he passed up with five guys, six guys, and anyway, you know, everybody's leaving gaps, and oh, you know, just uh, is all day, all, you know, for that first mountain, I was just overtaking riders the whole time, and you know, I never really saw the front, but you know, by the time we crested the first mountain, um, you know, it was maybe like a fifteen-kilometer climb, um, you know, like half the field was already dropped, like. You know, I was just at the tail end of, of what was left of the of, of the uh, group. So there's maybe 100 riders left, you know. We went down, whistling down, whistling down this bloody mountain. It reminded me of going down bloody Sazafraz, you know, coming down a fern tree gully. It was bloody fantastic. Uh, yeah, it was great. So, um, uh, you know, I passed a few riders and we get to the bottom of the uh, second climb. And the same thing happened again, you know. There's like a thinning out of, of riders and we get to the top of the second climb, and again, the size of the field had, had uh, cut in half. So now we're down to 50 riders. I mean, whistling down a bloody mouse, fantastic. You know, the narrow roads and, you know, the crowds, and, um, you, know, was, you know, you could see the towns way down in the valleys, and you'd have the descent of 20Ks, you know, and you're reaching huge speeds, you know, 60, 80Ks an hour or something. It's really fantastic. And, you know, you get to the bottom of the climb and start climbing. It's the penultimate climb down. And uh, I started recognising some of the riders around me, you know, from posters and things I had on my wall back in in, uh, in Melbourne. And, um, you know, once again, you know, riders are getting dropped and thinking, this is pretty, uh, great. And then all of a sudden I hear, hear my uh, team car, you know, coming up from behind, uh, you know, with the director and the, the, the directors in the car and winds the window down and says, uh, Phil, Jean-René, where is he? You're meant to be looking after Jean-René. Like, oh, where is he, you know? And he, he said, oh, he's, his teeth works back. You're meant to be looking after him today. And I'm thinking, oh, shit, you know, the pisses only just started drying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I said, look, I'm pretty buggered. I can... 
wait for him, you know, um, how far back is he? He said, oh, no, he's five minutes back. You're our lead rider now. Like, there's, there's nobody in, uh, in the next group. You know, you stay there. But you come and see me tonight. You had instructions you're meant to follow, you know. I think, oh, geez, okay. So, uh, you know, I put my head down and, and uh, you know, we get to the, to the top of the, the penultimate climb, Col de sort of, I couldn't remember the name of the climb. And, uh, you know, I didn't know any of the names of these climbs. It's just by, you know, following everybody else. And there's only like 15 riders left. You know, like I could see the front of the race from where I was, you know, and the crowds are going nuts. And, and um, you know, the bloody champions there, you know, the polka dot jersey and, you know, the winner from the Tour de France the year before and, and uh, you know, real bloody heroes of mine. And there was this kid from, from Hawthorne with piss all over him. <laughs> anyway, we go down the bloody mountain. And, um, you know, the bottom of the last climb and there's a flurry of attacks and, and um, you know, a little Belgian guy went up the road and I think he'd won the tour like four years before, Lucy Van Nip, a Belgian guy. And, um, and you know, like there's, only, there's not many of us left. And uh, the winner from the year previously or the year before that, Bernard Hino, it looks to me, as if I'm meant to chase this Belgian guy, you know, like, <laughs> I don't think, he, I don't know, I don't think he'd he, he never seen me before, Bernard, you know, and possibly thought I was just somebody from the crowd who jumped on my bike and <laughs> jumped in a race. <laughs> anyway, there's sort of gesturing for me to chase this Belgian guy. But um, anyway, you know, there was a few attacks and in the end we didn't catch that Belgian guy. In the end it was just this guy, Bernard Hino and myself. Uh, left and um, and uh, yeah, you know there was a there was a like I say we didn't catch the Belgian guy loose then, um, but we uh, so this guy Bernard you know and myself we uh, sprinted he beat me um, to the line for this uh, stage, uh, but because the day before our team beat theirs and the Belgian guys our team was uh, it was better than theirs that gave me the yellow jersey. So that was like uh, day five of my first Tour de France, <laughs> the kid from Hawthorne. And uh, people often say, well, did you have to go and see the director that night? What did he say? <laughs> and uh, no, he was, he was happy. And John and I came up to me after the race and said, oh, Phil, you know, I'm glad you didn't stay with me because I was having a shocker and uh, you wouldn't have been able to help. Congratulated me and, and um, you know, our careers sort of, um, you know, parallel with each other for, for a number of years, which is, uh, which is great. But, um, yeah, from there, that was on day five or something like that. The next day we had a, a time trial. So that was, that was uh, so I started the next day in the uh, yellow jersey and it was a time trial. You're thinking, well, there is a time trial for this thing, but it was a time trial down in the southwest, a uh, place called Poa, and it was a little, little lap. I think, and um, and uh, you might have time trials sort of start on a uh, like a podium. You go down this ramp, and being in the yellow jersey, you're the last rider to go because you start in reverse order of, of what you are in overall classification. So I was the last rider, and I'd never really ridden down one of these ramps before. You know, because it's not that wide, and uh, right down this ramp, and uh, all I was worried about was falling off that ramp to go into the crowd or something. <laughs> but anyway, um, 
you know, it was my first sort of Tour de France time trial. And, and people often say that the, the power that that yellow jersey gives you, you know, as the leader of, of the world's biggest race, the power that it kind of, how, how it empowers you. And uh, it was my first uh, time trial, but because I was, you know, lead, leading the Tour de France, I put in a... Um, you know, a big effort and came up with a coming third in that time trial, which is uh, which is huge. I mean, I lost the, I lost the jersey. Um, Bernard, he know my mate from uh, the day before. He he uh, got it off me uh, after the time trial, but still, he won the time trial. I got third, but um, still, I was only like twenty seconds behind or something. So for the next ten days or something, I was trying to get the jersey back off him. Um, you know, in the race, and uh, I failed, but I still. Um, you know, so I was in second place for like ten days until we got the Alps, and and um, and uh, yeah, ended up slipping to tenth. But yes, yeah, so I finished my first Tour de France in tenth uh, position. Hmm. Now, I've got a bit of a question. So I heard on that um, that fifth race that um, I'm not too sure who the other cyclist was, but he's one of the best in the world, and you might have. Uh, might have offered him on one of the uphill parts. Um, a cheeky Australian asked if he wanted to drink a, a can of drink. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> what that guy had Bernard he knows. So, yeah, it wasn't, a, wasn't on the last climb. It was the penultimate climb, the Pirisu, the colder Pirisu or something. And I'd noticed, you know, I mean, I'd never really ridden at the pointy end of the race like this, but um, I, I'm a quick learner, though. So <laughs> I'd noticed that, uh, you know, it was quite a hot day and um, – what the riders would do would, would be, uh, you know, somebody from the crowd would hand them a drink, you know, like a, a can of water, a, a bottle of water or a Coke or something like that. And, uh, you know, guys would take a swig and pass it to the next rider across the, um, you know, the front. I thought, oh, that must be one of the advantages of riding at the front because all I had to do was get pissed on when I'm at the back. <laughs> so, so I thought, gee, this is a bloody uh, great to be up here. So, um you know, on the penultimate climb, I noticed somebody just cracked a can of Coke and held it out, and I was on the right-hand side, and I thought, geez, I'll get some brandy points here. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll offer it to somebody, and I, I was about to take a swig of it, and I looked over, and it was this guy, Bernard Hino, you know, and he was in the polka dot jersey, which is the climber's jersey, and like I said, he, he was a hero of mine. He won the Tour de France. He's already run it, won it a couple of times. And I looked over at him and, and he was like had froth or, you know, salt and bloody, you know, he looked pretty buggered. So I thought I'll offer him first first swing, you know. So he looked at me at that, at that bloody uh, coat and like I said before, he possibly wondered who the hell am I, <laughs> this kid, you know, bloody lanky kid from bloody Hawthorne. And uh, possibly thought, like I said, it was just jumped out of the crowd or somebody, you know, a spectator. <laughs> you see all those people running along. And uh, saw me with that Coke and just was disgusted and just knocked the Coke out of my uh, hand. And bloody went up into the crowd like that. So, um, yeah. So that was the beginning of our fiery uh, relationship, which really lasted you know, our, our entire career because he was actually he was the guy that I was going to – he didn't realise that I was going to be the guy who was going to be, you know, getting the yellow jersey from, uh, from 45 minutes later <laughs> and, uh, you know, fighting against, fighting against for the next two weeks. So, um, yeah, but anyway, I mean, yeah, our, our, I mean, he had a very successful career. He became world champion, I think, in 80. So that was the – he was possibly wearing that – he would have been wearing the world. No, he's wearing the polka dot jersey, which is 
a classification like the yellow jersey, there's a Kleiner's jersey as well. So he was wearing that. But he was actually world champion at the time. Uh, yeah, Bernard, you know. I love, I love that story. And it sort of makes me think because I think in particular in Australia, you know, I guess I played cricket growing up, you know, sledging such a massive part of the sport. And I guess in America and basketball, trash talking, does that happen much in cycling or is it very much, I guess, a gentleman's game? Because obviously what you said there was a bit cheeky. Like, is that common? Or do under cyclists normally, you know, you're pretty polite to one another. You don't try to get into any psychological warfare like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's possibly um, not so psychological I don't think no it's possibly more more physical yeah uh, especially in sprints and things like that you see them with you know the big bunch and sometimes there's crashes and they're all body up against each other um, just like in in uh, athletics you know the sprinters um, you know they're they're wired a little differently you know even like you know the Jamaican guys all those sprinters you know at that level the um, in the athletic sprinting uh, completely different than marathoners, and um, but in cycling you've got the sprinters there as well, and you see those guys, and yeah, they're not just uh, wired differently; they've got loose wires out there. And they take risks, you know. They'll, there'll be guys sprinting elbow to elbow, and somebody will come in between those elbows. You know, you just have to be have a um, a crazy mind to, uh, you know, big balls to get bloody come through those gaps and, uh, you know, very risky and, yeah, they risk their lives uh, doing that shit. But, um, yeah, but, yeah, so those guys are quite fiery and, uh, you know, you don't want to get in their way, uh, you know, when they're getting ready for a sprint. I mean, if it's just a small group sprinting, it's one thing that, yeah, when you got 100 or 200 guys sprinting for the line, you know, those top sprinters are, are pretty, uh, pretty fiery. But yeah, there's not much, there's not much, not that much slagging, you know. Uh, yeah, so I think the next year in '82, uh, you won the white jacket, the white jersey for best young rider, and obviously winning the uh, yellow one uh, just the year before. Can you tell us a bit about the kind of Australian reaction to your achievements, and if there was any media attention to it, and of course your own personal feelings, your personal pride in those achievements? Um, yeah, so the white jersey is the uh, young riders uh, prize, you know. So it's sort of, uh, I think it's like, the, you know, the the, the, the uh, highest place rider under twenty three or whatever. So um, you know, and, and like the yellow jersey, you get it basically from day one, and it can change hands. And so um, I actually got the uh, I won a stage on like day. And uh, day two, I got a, I won a stage in Nancy, so it's over in the northeast of France, over sort of over that way, in the northeast, and I uh, got the yellow jersey, held the yellow jersey for like 10 days, and then lost it in the Pyrenees, and I got the white jersey because I was the leading rider under, 20, under 24. So, uh, and I basically kept that right through to Paris. So, <clears throat> The uh, the Tour de France is the same time of year every year, and it's it's kind of falls uh, right at the same time as Wimbledon, uh, and so quite often you'll see the Australian press will go over and they'll they'll do Wimbledon, and then they might go over to the um, to the Tour de France at the end of Wimbledon because Wimbledon goes for like a week or ten days, and uh, when it finishes, it's still half the Tour de France. 
um, to go. So back then there was, oh, you know, there would have been maybe a film crew, I think uh, maybe uh, Wide World of Sports, which was Channel 9, they would have come over. Um, uh, since I was wearing yellow, they would have come over and, and, and done a bit. But, yeah, they only sort of uh, tagged on it because, you know, they were over there for Wimbledon. You know, they didn't really start showing the Tour de France on, on uh, Aussie TV until about 90 or 91 when SBS, um, you know, when, when, when television became a real thing in, in uh, sport, in international sport, you know, it really changed. You know, the Americans were there in sort of the mid-'80s and then yeah, the Australians were like five years behind. And now, of course, you know, uh, Channel... Uh, SBS, they had a crew over there every year and, uh, you know, they had the rights and all that sort of stuff. So um, it's changed quite a bit. But, yeah, back then it would have been uh, Channel 9, you know, a couple of written press who were possibly only over there because of um, other sporting events and, you know, they're told by their editor, oh, there's some Aussie who's doing well in the the Tour de France. Do Do you want to hop over there and do an interview or get some stories and get some bit of colour to um, for that. I mean, now, I mean, you guys have grown up in a period where, you know, every July it's on TV, but back then there was, there was very little. There was very little. Yeah, so mm. just moving forward to the 1985 season as a whole, uh, you finished fifth in the Tour de France and you never even finished outside the top ten uh, by then. Uh, so finishing the top ten every season up until – uh, 1985, and but you were winning like races left, right, and center that year. Not just the Tour de France, you were winning all kinds of stuff. Uh, so just talk about, uh, tell us about the uh, just the great form you were in, and just like absolutely killing it on the cycling scene, really. Yeah, it was a uh, <clears throat> it was a um, big year. Uh, you know, I was on a um, on a Dutch team now, so I was on Peugeot, and then. Um, the end of ninety, uh, the end of eighty three, went uh, signed a, a, a contract with the Panasonic team, so they were out of Holland, out of uh, Amsterdam. So uh, yeah, we did the uh, Tour de France, and we had a um, a great team there. And um, well, actually, not just leading up to the uh, Tour de France, heaps of other races. You know, I was, I was doing possibly my best season. With about, I don't know, maybe 15, 16 wins throughout the year, um, one day races, uh, but also uh, tours as well. And before the, the Tour de France, is a big event called the uh, Dauphiné, which is a sort of a lead up event, maybe a week long or a 10 day race. And, and uh, you know, I did well the year before, and, um, you know, it's always a bit of a sort of measuring stick uh, prior to the uh, Tour de France. So, um, you know, I, I won that and won a couple of stages and then went from there. We went to uh, the Tour of Switzerland. I won that as well. I uh, had a really good, you know, I won like three stages and, you know, won not just the yellow jersey but the points jersey and the mountains jersey and um, three stages, like I said. So, you know, I went into the um, 85 Tour of France. It certainly is one of the favourites. Um, and... Um, yeah, did okay. Uh, didn't win, didn't win a stage, but um, you know, was putting a solid effort to, to finish fifth. Um, 
yeah, it was it was a good year, and our team, uh, our team alone won like three or four stages. Uh, the Panasonic team, and and I think one of the other riders even got the yellow jersey early on. So uh, it was a good, it was a great year for the uh, for the team. Um, not just in the Tour de France, like I said, but heaps of other other events, classics, and um, yeah, I think uh, Eddie Plankard, I think, won the the uh, Paris Bay that year. So. It was just a, uh, it was, you know, possibly the winniest team on the circuit uh, at that time. So that, that particular year did very well. Yeah. So obviously finishing fifth in the Tour de France, just an amazing, amazing achievement. And you did that twice, I believe. But is looking back on it now, is there any sadness perhaps that you never won the Tour de France, considering you were one of the favourites in 1985 in particular? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it would have been nice to, you know, it's every kid's dream um, just to ride on a pro team or to do the Tour de France, but um, to win the Tour, uh, you know, I mean, you're, you're, you know, you're the team leader and, you know, you go into these events and you've got to believe in yourself and the, uh, because the team's believing in you, you can't, you know, when you go into those, into those events, you've got to go there You've got to you've got to be convinced that you're going to win. You know you can't go in thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to finish fifth or I'm going to finish last or anything like that. Um, you know, I was, um, you know, being paid to win. I mean, you know, paid for results and um, uh, yeah, you put pressure on yourself and you and you and you, you do everything you can. But at the end uh, of the day, you know, you've got. Um, well, you know, you've got 200 guys in the start line. You've even got 200 winners there because a lot of them are domestics. Um, but, you know, you've possibly got uh, 20 riders there, 30 riders who are potential winners. So everybody's trying to win. Um, you know, unfortunately, there's only one winner. And, and um, you know, people say that, you know, maybe if I'd had better support or, you know, better teams. But like I said, I was like probably crack team that year. But, um, you know, I just... Uh, yeah, I, you know, I I don't think I was good enough. I couldn't have said that at the time. You know, that's in hindsight. Um, you know, because when you go into when you go into an event like that, you're going in believing you can win. You know, you can't go into an event, you know, thinking, oh, I'm not good enough. But in hindsight, it's easy to say, well, I obviously wasn't good enough. You know, and um, I mean, yeah, it would have been nice. I mean. You know, there'd never been a non-European win the Tour de France at that stage. You know, there wasn't a Canel Evans or there wasn't a Greg LeMond or there wasn't, you know, there weren't um, non, you know, it was, it was quite obscure to find uh, non-Europeans over there, let alone, you know, winners. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it was great. You know, I mean, I guess people, people, say that, um, you know, what I achieved, you know, sort of paved the way. So it gives people confidence or, you know, not a pathway, but I guess it's a results pathway, you know, because, you know, if you go into an event that nobody's ever done before in Australia, for example, you know, I don't know, pick a sport, uh, a non-Australian sport, I don't know. Ice hockey. Um, <laughs> Well, put it the other way. Put it the other way around. Uh, a Frenchman that wants to um, play AFL. Yeah. 
and, and he's living in Paris and he wants to come over here and his dream is to get a Brownlow medal or something like that. <laughs> it's like, yeah. But once the first Frenchman's done it, then you'll see next year there'll be a bloody, another one. You know, it's a bit like the Aussies when they go over and play, uh, well, gridiron or American footy. You know, they have to be the first one. And once the first one gets over there and, and gets um, a job as a quarterback or a kicker or whatever, uh, a goal kicker, then all of a sudden others aspire to do that. I mean, they're mostly doing it because the money they can get is ridiculous. But, you know, once the first one's done it, then, you know, the floodgates open. Now, I certainly wasn't the first Aussie, Aussie to do the Tour de France. There are many others before me, but because I got the results, it gave belief to other riders behind me, you know, like riders like, uh, well, like Cadell Evans, but, you know, there's a Stuart Grady's and the Robin McEwen's and all these other ones that, you know, they can get to do the Tour de France, but um, it's not just like guys before me that were really there just to push the guys while they're getting, having a piss or getting their water bottles, but they actually aspire to get a result, to win a stage or to get a jersey or to win the bloody thing, you know. And, and, uh, and you know, what Cadell Evans has done is, is fantastic and, it, and, and, it, and it, uh, you know, it's taken what I did to a whole new level, you know. Not only can they get to do the Tour de France and to win a stage or get a jersey, but they can actually aspire to bloody win it because it's been done before by an Aussie. So it's not impossible. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, I, I guess, um, you know, in a way that's where that uh, description of the pioneer, you were talking about uh, being a pioneer, I guess, um, you know, that's, uh, that was my sort of contribution or the reason why I'm called a pioneer, you know, but but also I guess what uh, Cadell has done is, is, is a pioneer as well because he's sort of t- taken to that next step. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> big step. Did, didn't we have uh, Richie Port? Did he finish third this year in the tour? Uh, yes. He, yeah. yeah, he finished third. So Great finish. Until, uh, well, other than Cadell, who obviously won, but he also got second and he got third, I think. Um, then there was my result. So, um, yeah, with my fifth, the two fifth places. So, yeah, so now Richie's come in and uh, done really well uh, to get his uh, third place, you know, just kind of a bit like how I did it, you know, you sort of come up in the last week and, and you just um, start climbing as other riders and start the fatigue, you just sort of uh, move up. But, yeah, you rode a, an excellent race. Yeah, so um, I guess we're jumping ahead a bit here, but so 94 was your final year as a professional racer and retiring and you capped off your career with the Commonwealth Games medal, another gold medal. Was that a nice little, I guess, starting your career with the Commonwealth Games and finishing it? It's a nice little, I guess, story. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, um, you know, you would stop to the, to, uh, to the career, sort of bookended, so this is how it started and how it finished. Yeah, it was a team time trial. Again, it was in um, Canada, so in um, on Vancouver Island. Nice bit of symmetry there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was a great way to end, end the career, actually. Um, and like I alluded to earlier, it was the first time professionals were allowed in to do the Commonwealth Games. So uh, not that I had a bunch of my colleagues there. I sort of basically rolled up on, uh, on the start line uh, it was a team time trial, so a four-man uh, time trial, different than the Tour de France, which is like eight-man. So this is four-man, so it's small, 100 kilometres. And, um, yeah, uh, yeah, so it was, yeah, it was on Vancouver Island. 
and it was um, I get to the start and I've got four, three other teammates who I'd never really met before. I'd read about them, but it wasn't like, you know, they were off basically, you know, from Melbourne or from, from you know, from Australia and I'd just sort of come over from, from Europe, joined them for a, um, for a few days do the race and then went back to Europe again. So I didn't really know who the guys were, whereas the others had been training and racing together, uh, you know, as, as young men. And I was like the old dog. I mean, I was 36 or something like that, no old 20s, early 20s. In fact, might have even been teens. But they all um, continued on in their careers. And, you know, within a year or 12 months, you know, I started doing some commentary for TV and stuff. And, you know, I was interviewing those guys and my old teammate. <laughs> But, um, but yeah, we did very well. We had a very fast uh, team time trial. I think we spoke on a world record time. And, um, yeah, did, got, got the gold medal, which was, um, which was marvellous. You know, it was a, a good way to end my career. Yeah, it's good, like, kind of taking the up-and-comers under your wing, just like you were 19, you won your first Commonwealth Games gold medal. As we said before, a nice bit of symmetry, but... Speaking of young riders, uh, you actually raced with Lance Armstrong, probably one of the most famous cyclists ever, if not the most famous, uh, in his early days at Motorola. So can you tell us just about uh, what he was like as a teammate and as a guy uh, when he was a young man? Yeah, no, um, yeah, he joined the team, I think, in 93. Uh, I'd seen him the year before. Racing in a uh, an event in uh, in America, and he was there on the national team. So he was, yeah, he was there on the American national team, and I was there on the Motorola team. And um, you know, the director of my team came and said, "Oh, there's this young guy, Lance Armstrong. He's a triathlete, but he's uh, he's a strong bike rider, and he's he's um, have a look at him and see what you think. You know, do you think he'd be a, a good rider to have on the team? You know." At that stage, he was only 16 or 17, but he was a very good triathlete. You know, he was like voted, uh, he was voted in America as the most likely to succeed, um, you know, triathlete, or most likely as, as a junior in the whole of America. So he was a pretty good uh, talent. And um, yeah, I watched him and, and uh, yeah, and the next year he, uh, he came on board. Uh, Motorola, of course, this is all free cancer, and, and so he's uh, you know very young. And uh, yeah, the first <clears throat> the first time, you know, I I you say hi in the bunch and stuff when you're racing along, but the first time once he'd signed, I was I was in the um, we we're having a training camp in Santa Rosa, so San Francisco uh, International Airport. I was just flown from Melbourne. Uh, there and the guys are coming from all over the world which is going to go up the road to Santa Rosa and so I'm first on the bus I'm pretty buggy after the flight and I'm right at the back of the team bus and uh, we pull up at the domestic terminal uh, uh, to pick up the next rider that came in it was a young Lance you know and I'd seen him the year before and he and he sort of looked he was he came in the front door and uh, the driver took his suitcase and, he, and Lance walked straight down but he marched straight down the uh, aisle towards me, you know, and I just want a bloody rest, you know, and he gets right in my face like this and he goes, 
feelings. I'm so happy to be on the team with you. I can't believe it. You know, I've got a poster in you in my bloody bedroom and you're just banging on. And it's like, oh, geez. And he just started rattling off results and all this sort of shit, you know, like, you know, know, like rattling off my resume sort of thing, you know. And And he said, put it there, buddy, you know. I'm Lance, you know, I've only just started racing and pretty excited to be on the team with you and I've requested to be your bloody uh, roomie for the team meeting and for the uh, training camp. You know, I'm going to be there for a couple of weeks. I thought, God, two weeks of this. I just wanted to bloody put my feet up. And um, and then, uh, you know, he rattles off. He said, oh, you've just gone through a messy divorce, haven't you? Oh, my mum's just... Bloody gone through those, bloody awful, you know, how do you manage? And I said, oh, you know, I didn't want to bloody get into the personal shit. Didn't know him, you know. And he said, my mum's coming to the training camp like we're having a rest day. You should meet her. She's a bloody great girl, you know. He's trying to set you up. <laughs> trying, to, trying, to, trying to set me up with his mum. <laughs> so uh, that, was the, that was the first time I met uh, Lance. You know, he put me in, in my place right away. But... Um, you know, like we, we uh, got to know each other pretty well and, and um, you know, he just had a lot of energy and kind of, you know, it's kind of not my twilight years but towards the end of my career and, and he kind of reminded me of possibly what I appeared like when I was a young kid, you know, like just enthusiastic and, you know, wanting to win everything and, and um, you know, I remember we were at a, at a, at a race uh, in America uh, later that year, you know, we came back to race this um uh, it was actually the national championships. Lance was going really well, and so we were there to support Lance, you know. And there's also there's a million dollar prize too, so it was uh, financially it was quite big space, and uh, it was called the Triple Crown. And he 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 won the um, the first two races, and if you won the three, then you get a million dollars, like you know, from a sponsor from you know the prize. And so he won the first two races, and and. Uh, and so it's all the pressure on, on this third race. And, of course, you know, everybody's trying to prevent him from winning it. And so uh, we made a plan how we're going to race it. You know, he was going to wait until the last lap or something and then he was going to attack. And, and uh, we had to go up this really steep hill. We had to go up this really steep hill every lap. And, you know, that was the spot where he was going to attack. And um, I swear, on the very first lap we went up there, we had to go there like 50, 15 times. Lance would come up to me and say, Phil, I feel good. I think I'm going to go next lap. I'm going to go. I said, Lance, what are we talking about? Oh, yeah, I'm feeling good, you know. I said, keep it easy. <laughs> Take it easy. <laughs> you know, we got another 14 times. And so every lap he came up to me and he, and, he, and he asked me, you know, he told me. Like it was a steep bloody wall, you know. It was only a couple hundred metres long. It's called the Mani- Maniac Wall. It's in Philadelphia. And, um, you know, because we used to do this bloody race every year. He used to stand with showers, with uh, hoses and spray us all down. It was like topless ladies up there. It was bloody, it was bloody great. <laughs> crowds. And uh, every lap. And finally, you know, you know, it was like the penultimate lap. I said, Lance, next lap, okay, just save everything for that last, last attack, you know. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, sure enough, the last lap, he attacks. And, oh, you know, you've got to... Spinning away and looking over his shoulder, saying, "Oh, keep going, you know, you're already fucking mailed, you know." <laughs> and, so, and so he went on, and he and he won. So he only got the, you know seven digits, but he made That's a whole other story. But anyway, it was funny. Uh, it was great. But yeah, just to see that that uh, power that he had and that youthfulness, you know, it was you know, 
I was telling what happened to his career and and um, yeah, see what what uh, what became was was uh, shocking and what happened to the sport um, with the drugs. But anyway, you know, obviously he's retired now. Uh, but I don't think he has a he doesn't have a moment of regret either. In fact, he does a really he does a really good podcast as well. Yeah, he does. I uh, definitely recommend that to anyone listening. That's a, it's definitely a good podcast. Yeah, uh, maybe we'll have to get him on. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Yeah, is it true what Phil said about your mum? <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was going to ask Phil. I was going to ask you. So yeah. obviously, um, Lance, being a young member of your team, was he your domestic? Was he the one pushing you up the hills while you had to piss? Yeah, he was. He was <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's actually photos getting around uh, to Ireland. Patrick Sheldon caught. Lead me up the hill. Yeah, I used to piss on him. <laughs> no. no, not really. I never did that, you know. I think you had to be there. Uh, you know, you've got to go through that sort of schooling of, of uh, getting pissed on and you make sure that you never piss on him. <laughs> I should have said that to my mates when I was bloody pushing them up a bloody hill and going, yeah. You'd buy up bastards. I'm going to piss on you tomorrow. You won't never do this again. <laughs> That's well learned and well taught anyway. Uh, sorry, I'll, I just want to quickly ask, are you still in contact with Lance? Do you still speak? Um, look, I, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't not talk to him by any means. Uh, you know, I listen to his podcast. Uh, you know, they're only going during the events, like, uh, you know, the Tour de France. But now the Giro's just started. Uh you know, it just started uh, in October because the whole season with the COVID things all, all a bit muddled up. So but, um, I'll have to check and see if he's doing the sort of daily podcast. But, um, yeah, I reckon we'll possibly catch up sometime. Uh, you know, we always remember Lance as a, as, a, as a young, dynamic rider. You know, you see him now. He's still pretty fit. He's pretty buff and still works out and, and, um, and, and rides quite a bit. And so he's pretty fit, but he's going grey, you know, like uh, I've got a bit of grey here. So, um, but yeah, it's good to see, you know, it's good to see he's moved on. But I mean, yeah, what he did, um, you know, very disappointing. I mean, when, you know, we rode together, like the same team, <laughs> roomies, uh, you know, we were pretty close for about uh, two or three years. And uh, I never saw that side of him. I never saw, you know, Never saw any sort of drugs or usage or, you know, discussion of it. Um, you know, we were pretty close. I reckon I would have been privy to anything like that um, or any of the bullying and that. But, you know, he's a Texan, so he's kind of brash, so he can come over, um, you know, he can come over as a bit of a, a, a bully, I guess, or a loud mouth. Um, uh, you know, he's confident, doesn't, doesn't like confidence, that's for sure. You know, like, I was glad I was on his team because, you know, you'd be embarrassed sometimes, you know, like even from day one, you know, like his very first race, you know, he'd be flipping the bird to riders, you know, who you should have respect for, um, you know. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, he didn't care, you know. He was like, he was just like telling people to, you know, piss off and, you know, so, 
maybe going back to your earlier question, you should ask Lance about <laughs> whether there was much, you know, psychological play from between on. <laughs> so maybe it's an exception. <laughs> now, in a perfect world for Lance, you might be his stepdad. So uh, uh, talking about post-career, uh, do you have any kids yourself? Um, yeah, I have uh, three boys. Uh, they're all uh, living in America because I had uh, two marriages, both American uh, women. So, um, yeah, Lauren and Matthew, they're in their 30s and live up in Seattle. Um, yeah, they're living up there and, and working up there successfully in around the Seattle, so the north, northwest area. And uh, my, other, my third son is over in the East Coast, uh, upstate New York. So, yeah, he's got a university over there. So uh, I see them from time to time, speak to them from time to time. But, yeah, they're um, you know, basically, well, the young one grew up here pretty much with, uh, with us here in, uh, in Victoria. But, uh, and so he's only been over there about three or four years. But, um, yeah, you know, I'm... Uh, Happily living down here with my partner Anne and and uh, pretty quiet life down the coast. Still riding a couple of times a week and um, doing quite a bit of gravel riding, sort of adventure riding. I've been going, you know, off into the wilderness with my bike. Um, sometimes it's just two hours, but other times it's um, you know for a week or two, um, you know, somewhere here in Australia. But yeah, I love love sort of the um, you know the uh, the challenge of going along through places less travelled, you know, I've just come back from the northeast, where we're sort of going through um, Manfred Snowy River uh, country up in the Alps, and uh, you know, I mean, it's a bit challenging at the moment with the restrictions due to COVID. But uh, living in the country, uh, we're not living under the same restrictions as as people living in, in Melbourne, for example. But so I feel very fortunate in that regard. But it's still preventing us to from travelling overseas. So, you know, we have, you know, we, we take people overseas to watch different events. Um, we have a little business. So, uh, but we're, you know, we're uh, slowly but surely pulling out of that and doing more domestic things here in Australia, uh, sharing the beautiful area where we are down the Great Ocean Road, taking people out along here, and little sort of weekend camps and rides be on the road or could be in the bitumen uh, type rides on the Great Ocean Road could be a nice destination but uh, yeah never enough hour, hours in the day to uh, to do all these things yeah definitely because I've just like noticed um, I mean you're 62 mate you look like you're in your 40s you're in phenomenal nick um, a lot of people I guess post career I think in particular footy is a great one like they're these big brash fit men and then they blow out post career but you're still as fit as ever I was wondering like so you're obviously still cycling and I was just wondering why is that so like I know for me during this isolation period like, I've started running a lot more and I just feel like it's so good for mental health it's such a good release and then not enough people actually get out there, go for a run, go for a bike ride, and I think it's awesome they're still doing that. Is that sort of just to what? Like, why? I guess are you still so motivated at your age to still be cycling? Because I don't know. Because it's a phenomenal effort at sixty-two to still go out for several rides a week. Yeah, I mean, it's um, I try and exercise every day. Normally, it's it's running, so I run maybe uh, five times a week and and run and ride a couple of times. So. 
for me, uh, you know, if you haven't got your health, you haven't got anything, you know, above uh, anything else, you know, the health's the most important thing. And, and uh, you know, I see other, I see people, you know, fall on the wayside, whether it's, you know, um, former colleagues of mine that, uh, you know, stopped and, and uh, they're just totally flogged by the time they finish racing. The last thing they ever want to do is get back on a bike again. But, um, you know, in my, like, immediately post-career, I didn't ride possibly very much in the first 12 months or, you know, even two or three years, didn't ride much. Certainly nothing like now. But I started, but I was always exercising. I started running. Um, you know, as I kept said, I used to run as a kid. And then when I was racing, I never raced. I never ran when I was racing, you know, during the racing, during my cycling career. But then the moment I stopped, the next day, I think I was out running, you know. And it wasn't that like I loved running, um, but I just find it's an efficient way to keep, you know, sort of a base, base fitness. Um, you know, and now I, I, I run all the time, uh, mostly in the bush, like uh, trail running. So uh, snakes have just started coming out. <laughs> I've just seen my first snake this morning, so it always makes you a little bit um, toey uh, during the summer period. So you have to run on trails which are a little bit wider uh, so you can get a better view of what you're, what you're, what you're running. Um, but, yeah, you know, uh, so this morning I've been for a um, two-hour ride, uh, gravel ride just up in the outways here, yeah. and then I went for a hike. Um, for an hour and a half or two. That's phenomenal. That's you know, the weekend, so we got friends here. So we're doing. Uh, we went for a hike, but yeah, a typical day would be um, an hour of exercise, uh, and try and get maybe seven or eight hours sleep, and yeah, the rest of the time doing stuff around here in the office, or you know, I've been doing a bit of trail building, which is nice in the um, area around here, so I can run on. Yeah. yeah, and you've got your um, cycling tours, I believe, as well. We were talking a bit about that before the show. Uh, so do you want to give a bit of a plug to that? Tell us about uh, that venture for you. Yeah, well, Phil Anderson Cycling, we run tours every year. We go to Tour de France, the Tour of Italy, Tour of Spain, the three big grand tours. But um, what, we, what we want to do now is, and it's something which is, I mean, travel has is, is changed and COVID's really you know, changing all of that. So, um, you know, we're looking at more uh, domestic travel or not really travel, but cycling experiences. Um, the only one we've got up at the moment is just uh, riding down here in the off way, which is just a two or three day um, uh, product, we'll call it, just where, um, you know, stay in a really nice um, property uh, overlooking the ocean and, yeah, rides through the Otways, uh, gravel or bitumen. You know, there's a couple of good uh, bitumen routes you can do here. And there's heaps of uh, gravel you can do, you know, where you've got vistas of, you know, overlooking the ocean and, um, you know, an iconic uh, country and just uh, beautiful down here. So, yeah, that's, that's what we're uh, doing now. But, yeah, sort of semi-retired, I think you'd say, um, especially that's how it is at the, uh, at the moment with COVID. <laughs> Yeah, I'd just like to um, touch on what we were discussing before. I mean, you're 62 and you're still doing all this exercise and, like, 
you're cycling through your careers. I know a lot of people that did a lot of sports earlier on, like football, rugby, they tend to have sore knees. But you're 62, you just did two hours of a trail ride today and an hour and a half hike. Like, how have you kept your body in such good condition? Like, you didn't have ice baths earlier on in your career. Is there anything that you do um, now, like in terms of recovery that you've been doing for the last couple of years? Maybe any little tips and secrets? Um, not really. I mean, I guess you want to keep it fresh. You want to. You know, don't want to get into sort of a, too much of a routine, so you kind of change things up a little bit. Um, you know, I also do a little bit of stretching. Um, you know, if, if, uh, I've got a mate that's a personal trainer and, you know, I'll have a, an ache or a pain and I'll call him up and he'll put me on to something, you know, like, you know, just using some elastic or, you know, for, for, for certain injuries or whatever, you know, but... Um, yeah, you know, like I said, health's the most important thing, and and um, yeah, if you can, if you can, when you're racing, it's very structured, you know. And you have a, you know, there's a there's a circuit or a calendar that you're on. You know, you know, this time of the year you're going to be doing that. That time of the year you're going to be doing that. You know, uh, obviously, if all that stops, then you've got to. Um, it's good to set new sort of uh, goals or. Um, you know, things to aim for, especially if you're like myself where, you know, basically retired, you know, just don't want to bloody, you know, sit in the bloody front porch and the bloody rocking chair and wait to die. You want to, you want to do things. So, you know, I'm, I'm dying to go for a, you know, a long, a long ride, which will maybe go for a week or something like that. Um, I've done it the last few years and, you know, now I'm sort of thinking about, you know, which route I'm going to take and, you know, I like to stop at pubs in the middle of nowhere and have lunch and then, you know, get back on the bike and ride 100 kilometres and, you know, you get in at nightfall and, and you might stay at another pub for a couple of days and then move on, you know. So I'm sort of thinking of this now, of something which I'll possibly do in uh, possibly December is good, um, just before Christmas because then you escape all the... Christmas frivolities. <laughs> you just have to go to boring, you know, um, you know, dinners and things like that. So you're missing in missing in action. You go on a on a, on a cycling odyssey, which takes you, you know, interstate or something. Hopefully, the border will open up. But yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm through the last few years. I've I've been crossing the Alps. Um, you know, sort of started closer to Melbourne and and. Uh, Went up through um, oh, actually where all the where all the fires were up Dargo and up that way and um, you know and then last year went up through uh, Angler's Rest and um, Benambra and up to uh, Omeo and all, all and across to Coriong and then this year I want to go a bit further uh, east through. Uh, uh, Buckham, I think, yeah. So there were fires there this last summer. Yeah, you go through Buckham and then and then go up towards Canberra and then cut over. Yeah, so I'm gradually making my way towards, um, you know, the, the coastal border between New South Wales and, and uh, Victoria. So in a couple of years I'll be over there, but I want to try and get every pass there is. Because you go over, you know, we've got the Alps there, which kind of along the border, so... And gradually, sort of reconnoitring, doing uh, a recce of all these uh, different uh, entrances to New South Wales. But obviously, if, if things don't happen up before December, I'll, I'll, I'll have to do a U-turn. 
Yeah, so you set yourself these these, these, uh, these things to look forward to. So during COVID, I'm sort of thinking of that and, you know, maybe uh, my partner and I were thinking of maybe doing a shorter one, just going over to the grandparents or something like that, you know, just sort of get on our bikes and start riding there and we get tired, we just find a motel and camp in there and then push off the next day, you know, and just do it on a bike. And, um, yeah, because I'm always doing these things by myself or with uh, a bloke and, and she misses out, so it's good to do something with, with her. Mm. Now, Phil and Lockie, we've been going on for a long, long time and we've got a, a little last segment we like to do on the show. Uh, Lockie actually told me he's the number one fan of this segment before the pod, but uh, what we're going to do... First time I've heard it. <laughs> what, what we're going to do uh, is I, I've put together a bit of a quiz vaguely relating to your career. Uh, so I'm going to be pitting you against Lockie and it's a five-question quiz and, yeah, we'll just see how it goes. We ready to go? So we'll start off with question one, of course. So, Phil, you were born on March 20. Yeah, that's correct? Yes, yes. So March 20, I'm not sure if you knew this, March 20 is World Sparrow Day. So uh, I'm going to play some audio clips, and you have to tell me which one out of the four is the call of a house sparrow. Have you got that? Okay. Okay, so... Since, this uh, is right in my wheelhouse. <laughs> good luck, good luck, Phil. I study my sparrows closely. This is number two. Yep, that's it. Number Okay, Phil, did you want to answer? Uh, you buzzed be in before. Two. Number two? It'd have to be, it'd have to no. be two, I reckon. Number two is absolutely correct. He's got it. And you know what? I'll give you a bonus point if you can name what each one is. Well, the first one was obviously a blue jay. Anybody that knows their birds knows that. Uh, that would be incorrect. <laughs> it's not blue jay. Mm. <laughs> it's the only bird I know. <laughs> All right. So the, the four birds were... So Phil's 1-0 up. But the four birds, the first one was a bald eagle. The second one was a house sparrow. The third one was an em- a group of emperor penguins. And the fourth one was a common miner. So there you go. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think the penguins would have stumped me, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have uh, eagles here. Um, and we obviously have sparrows about everywhere. Indian miners, I remember as a kid. Uh Penguins, we have fairy penguins over the road here from time to time, but most of them get lost on their way to uh, Antarctica. But the emperors, um, no, we don't have them down this way, so I haven't heard what they call them like. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, but we'll move on to question two. Phil got an early lead, one nil up, but question two, so obviously Phil, short for Philip. So the name Philip is derived from the Greek philippos, which actually means horse-loving or fond of horses. So, uh, I want you to tell me the lyrics to the chorus of Daryl Braithwaite's famous cover of the song, The Horses. I will be riding on the horses. Wait, no, is that it? Buzz in first. We we need someone to buzz in. Wait, wait, sorry, I've just gone gone ahead. (laughs) Uh. 
Phil, do you know the song? Yeah, actually, that's it. So that's the way it's going to be, little darling. We'll be oh, riding yeah. on the horses. Yeah, yeah. Come on, give me that point. Yeah, give yeah. Can, can you finish off the chorus for me? And then I'll give you the point. You've nearly, you've halfway through, there's two more lines. I can't do that, I'm afraid. Oh, oh I'll, I'll give you the point. I'll give you the point anyway. So anyway, so that's the way it's going to be, little darling. We'll be riding on the horses. Yeah, yeah. Way up in the sky, little darling. And if you fall, I'll pick you up, pick you up. So, an absolute Aussie classic, that song. You found that yeah, song? Yeah, no, cool? um, Aussie classic, yeah. But Dan, yeah. I can recall the, uh, the lyrics. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm half Kiwi, so I'm not a true Australian, so that's why I probably didn't know it. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, fair enough. Well, I'll, I'll give you the point anyway. So, it's, it's one all. It's one all. So, of course, Phil, uh, you, one of your teams that you raced for was Panasonic. Uh, so, yeah, you raced for Panasonic, of course. And the company Panasonic was founded in 1918 in Japan's second biggest city. What is this city? Uh, Rocky, I'll buzz in. Uh, the second biggest city in Japan is Yokohama. Oh, uh, that, that's technically correct. But in this, I'm going to consider Yokohama part of Tokyo, which... I'll let you the second biggest city would be Osaka then. That is correct. That is absolutely I was, correct. I was in Japan earlier this year, so that was right in my wheelhouse. Yeah, there you go. I was actually born in Tokyo. Uh, oh, yeah. Mate, great place. Yeah. Have you been, yeah. Phil? Uh, yeah, we had the World Championships there in 90, I think. But um, yeah, I mean, I wasn't there as a tourist. Just, you know, <laughs> remember small hotel rooms, uh, yeah. big airport. Uh, fast trains and a bit of suffering in the bike race. Other than that, I was glad to leave. But no, no uh, beautiful place to ride though, and hope you get back there sometime. Yeah, just Great not at a bike race. <laughs> yeah. no, that was, I went there in the summer as well. It's probably the last place I'll be going overseas for a while. But yeah. uh, anyway, question four. So I think we spoke right about two hours ago uh, earlier in the podcast that you're, you're a Trinity grammar boy. So another. Uh, famous or semi-famous Trinity Grammar boy is Thomas Main. So Thomas Main's the inventor of Milo. So this is the closest to the pin question. So per 100 grams, how much sugar does Milo contain? It's closest to the pin. How many grams of sugar? How many grams of sugar per 100 grams? 100 grams of Milo, I think. So 100 grams of Milo, how much sugar is in the 100 grams of Milo? Well, it wouldn't be totally grams, but I know it's pretty, pretty sweet. Um, I don't know, maybe uh, 75 grams. Phil says 75, pretty lucky. I think, I'm just thinking, I don't think over half the, uh, tr- it would not, like, it wouldn't be three quarters sugar. I'd say it'd be a fair bit lower than that because there'd be a couple other ingredients. I'm going to say it is maybe just under 50%. I'll go 40. It's very close. It's 43.6 grams per 100 grams. He's done very well there. Cool. 75. Process of elimination. Sh- shooting a bit over there. I just bit. remember having, I just remember having commercials of that when I was a kid and thinking how bloody sweet it is. It just tastes like 100% sugar. Yeah. <laughs> and what do you know the inventor of Milo actually turned out to go to the same high school as you so yeah, lovely little yeah. parallel there <laughs> yeah but it is bloody sweet anyway question five so uh, I believe Lockie's got a 3-1 lead but Phil could still win because question five is a who am I question so 
I'm going to go down from five points all the way down to one point with a series of clues. And uh, yeah, so once you buzz in, uh, you can't buzz in again until the other person gets it wrong. Got that, guys? Yeah. Yeah. All right, perfect. So yeah, just buzz in with your name. Anyway, so this is who am I question. So for five points, I was born on the 8th of January, 1947 in London, the same city as you were born in Phil, of course. But I think that was, might be a bit tricky to get it from there. So I'll move on to the four-point clue. I was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1996. Shall I move on to question or the three-point clue? Yeah. All right. So Phil has to get it here to win it outright. So Phil, on your toes. Are we ready to go for three points. 11 of my albums have reached number one, and I'm one of the best-selling music artists of all time. Uh, Lockie. Lockie? I'll go early. Johnny, Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash is incorrect. Mm. Phil, do you, want, do you want to buzz in now? Have a stab? Um, to win it outright? 96. He was inducted, was it? Yeah, born in London in 1947. 47, so, so he's 70, 70s, uh, Hall of Fame, hang on, uh, 11 albums. 11 albums? No, sorry, 11 albums have reached number one, but he's got more than 11 albums, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, not Elton John. Elton John is incorrect, but so we'll move on, we'll move on to the two-point clue. And uh, Phil, it, we'll open it back up to both of you. And Phil, if you get it here, we'll go to a tiebreak question because this podcast hasn't gone on for long enough. Anyway, for two points. Uh, so for two points, I died on the 10th of January 2016 after an 18th month, 18 month battle with liver cancer. So died in 2016 at the age of oh, 71. Lucky. <laughs> Oh, oh, sorry. I thought I was buzzing in, Lockie. Uh, oh, I've got no idea. No, no, no. Phil, <laughs> want to have a crack? <laughs> um, all right. So, born in London. Uh, I'm trying to think who passed away in 2016. So, yeah, passed away in 2016 from liver cancer, one of the best-selling uh, music uh, artists of all time in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Died at 71. So, sorry, not 71, 69. Okay, mate, um, I've got no idea. Just go down to the one-pointer and just do winner-takes-all, I reckon. Uh, okay, so, Phil, you, you don't want to have a stab at the two-pointer so you can go to a tiebreak? Are you sure? <laughs> nah. Okay, I'll, okay. I'll say, yeah, I've got no idea. Who, who would I be thinking I'll of? Go, I'll go to the one-point clue, yeah. Lockie. Um, so, for one point, Lockie's already won it, but it's a bit of a dead rubber, but for one point, I was born David Robert James but used a stage name throughout my professional life. Oh, it wasn't Mick Jagger, was it? Not Mick Jagger. Born David Robert James. And he kept that first name. I'll say that as well. Oh, I know. I know. Yeah. I can't believe it. Well, this is my best mate's favourite artist. Say, oh, say it, my say God. It, say it. You, you've already won the quiz. David you know, Bowie. David Bowie is absolutely correct. Oh, mate. My mate's going to kill me. I remember as well when he passed away because we were in New Zealand together. And, um, that's when, and I found out um, when he passed away, and he's a massive... Um, David Bowie fan and Prince, those were his two favourite yeah. artists, and they died, died in the not same too year, far apart. I think. Or yeah, maybe a couple of years apart. You fan of David Bowie, Phil? Uh, yeah, 
I've enjoyed some of his uh, work over the years. Yeah, it's um, got a unique uh, sound to it, that's for sure. Definitely does. Um, we've been going on a long, long time. I think we're going to split this into two parts, this podcast. But <laughs> thank you very much for coming on, Phil. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. You've been super generous with your time. So thank you very much. No worries, Harper. Lucky. It was uh, nice. Uh, enjoyed um, chatting with you too. It's been a great, uh, great, great afternoon. Lucky, how good was that? Mate, that was absolutely awesome. When I first heard we were doing Phil Anderson, I didn't think we'd end up talking about pissing on Lance Armstrong, but here we are. Yeah, exactly. It took some unusual turns, some really interesting turns, some funny turns. Phil Anderson, just a really great guy, gave us so much time, so generous with the time. We had to actually split it into two parts. It was that good, but I would not change a second of it. 100% now. I reckon it's time we plug our socials so you can find us at Facebook on Where Do We Begin? And, uh, yeah, you can also find us facebook.com forward slash WDWBpod or check us out on Twitter and Instagram at WDWBpod. You can get some good content there. That is at WDWBpod. It's a bloody marvellous group of letters we've got going there. And also, if you do like the show, give us a five-star review or give us whatever review you want. And, uh, of course, uh, spread the show by word of mouth because that's a great way to share the podcast, eh? 100%, 100%, just say your friends give you the aux cord in the car, you should play the podcast. Just say you're connected up to the speaker when you're at your mates, of course, in states outside of Victoria, play the podcast. Just say you control the music at work, well, play the podcast. It's amazing and everybody will get around it and it'd be massive for us. We want to get as many listeners as possible. They, they do call this show the people magnet. So if you do put this on anywhere in public or if you've got anywhere else, People will just come flocking to you if they hear uh, a glimpse of where do we begin because they just love the show that much. And, of course, they love the show. I reckon we've built up a really good list of guests uh, recently. We've got about a bit more over 20 episodes and we've got some really good guests. So check out our back catalogue, whatever sport you're into, because we've got some really good content there. I'd definitely recommend that. Uh, unfortunately, it's been a long episode this week, so we're not going to have any music this time, but we'll see you same time next week on Monday. Thanks for listening.